Church. Our scripture this morning comes from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. If you're using a pew Bible, that's on page 660. It's a great blessing to be with you all. Uh, a lot has changed in my life over the course of the few months. I got married uh, in December to my wife, Sarah. Uh, we, since then, have left the ministry of Life Action. Uh, we still very much believe in the ministry of Life Action. However, we have left to go to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary to prepare for pastoral ministry. Uh, that's what we believe God has, has called me and our family to. Uh, and Hamilton Baptist Church has been a great blessing uh, to me and my family, uh, especially the elders. Uh, yeah, <laughs> going to cry. But anyways, uh, yeah, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. The word of God reads, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I made with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the new covenant that has been brought for sinners such as myself, for sinners in this church. Jesus, we ask that your word would change our hearts that our hearts might be conformed to your image. Father, would you conform Hamilton Baptist Church to Jesus? That's why we're here. That's what we long for. And we're expectant as to what you will do this morning and in the days ahead. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. A man by the name of Benjamin Warfield, a renowned scholar of Princeton Seminary, was married in the year 1876. He was 25 years old. His wife, a woman named Annie Pierce Kincaid, married him. And one can only imagine the expectation associated with their future life together. Coming together in passionate love in their youth, moving to the blessing of children, and raising those children together as a family. And then after their children grow up, leaving the home and, and then renewing their love together in, a, in an empty nest. And as anyone who has go, gone through the process of pursuit and engagement knows, you know the expectation associated with coming together with the man or the woman you love. One could likely assume the same for Benjamin and Annie. Their vows would have been very much the same as, as yours and mine have been in marriage, consisting of in sickness and in health, till death do us part. 
Little did Benjamin know that those very words would be tested in short order following his marriage. Benjamin and Annie's honeymoon was in Germany. And it was in Germany that a storm arose. And lightning struck Annie, leaving her paralyzed for the rest of her life. All of a sudden, marriage looked very different for Benjamin. His faithfulness to his wife was going to be tested. And after shattered dreams of the life that they might have had, would he remain faithful to her? Benjamin Warfield was faithful. Faithful to the very end. In fact, before the year 1950, when Annie died, Benjamin would seldom leave his home for more than two hours at a time during their entire 39-year marriage. Benjamin was a faithful husband to the death of his wife. Even though he was always on the giving end, he still loved his wife faithfully, no matter what she could give in return. Our passage this morning is a testimony to the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh to Israel. In spite of Israel's constant rebellion and abandonment of God, his commandments, and his covenant, we see a God who continued to pursue as a husband pursues his wife, no matter the cost. Our text comes from the book of Jeremiah, obviously authored by the prophet Jeremiah, with the assistance of his scribe, Baruch. Jeremiah lived in the years 645 to 540 B.C., give or take. And it was during this time that Jeremiah would have seen some amazing things occur in Israel and Judah. Israel would have been conquered already at this time by the nation of Assyria. And Jerusalem was soon to fall to the Babylonians in the years 1590. Jeremiah wasn't the most sought-after conference speaker Uh, Scholars know of only two known converts, one of them being his scribe, Baruch. And this book of Jeremiah, rather than Jeremiah and Baruch sitting down writing 52 chapters at one time, is actually a beautiful mosaic of Jeremiah's sermons, his poetry, and his prophecy given throughout his career. It's not a linear chronology of the life and ministry of Jeremiah, but rather a literary masterpiece to best emphasize the failures of Judah, her deserved judgment, and yet the expectant hope that they still had under Yahweh. One can only imagine what Jeremiah had seen in his life and ministry to have been constantly ignored by the people of Judah and see the tumultuous wave that was Yahweh coming upon the Judean people. And yet, in this book, Jeremiah still prophesies of a great hope, of a great husband, Yahweh, who is still pursuing Israel even in the midst of her rebellion. And so that's where we are in in Jeremiah 31 Consider with me first verse 31. Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. If you were to read up to this point in in Jeremiah, which I would encourage you to do perhaps this week, 
and, and read of all that Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesied, you would, you'd eventually get to chapter 4 of Jeremiah, and, and you would read, Besiegers come from a distant land. They shout against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field are they against her all around, because she has rebelled. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom, and it is bitter. And then after you get through chapter 4, you would, you would see chapter 5. And then chapter 6, you would see God saying, I am going to reject you. And God would reject his people for a time. And yet, it was within this great prophecy of judgment that Jeremiah proclaims hope for Israel in the days ahead. Though they soon will be in chains off to Babylon, there is coming a great hope. And that is what he's declaring in verse 31 when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, we must understand the scripture's use of the word covenant here. You, you heard a covenant read this morning in the, in the bringing of new members and And the word covenant is actually a motif used throughout the scriptures. It's it's an agreement reached between unequals. God is the one who initiates the covenant, and he confers it upon the human recipient. And with these covenants come two things. First, commands and promises. Consider with me Genesis 12, right? Abraham is, is given this covenant. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. And, and see with me the, the command and the promise. In Genesis 12, verse 1, God says, Go from your country to the land that I will show you. That's the command. And then in verse 2, he says, This is the promise. I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse. And so this is how we should understand this covenant, this idea of of command and promise. If you will obey the command of God, you will receive this great promise. And so remember this as we discuss this old covenant, this this idea of command and promise. And before before we jump into the old covenant, which we will... I also want to emphasize this other word in verse 31. Look at it with me. He says, I will make a new covenant. This word new here is is not just a random word chosen. It's, It's chosen for a reason. Much like the word covenant, newness is another motif being used here, right? This is this is very much a poetic understanding. Newness is an image that is that is very much central to our theology. Consider this, Genesis 1, God creates a new world. Genesis 2, God creates a new image bearer. Genesis 12, God creates a new people. Lamentations 3, God bestows new mercies every day. Psalm 40, those who are in Christ have a new song. Ezekiel 36, God will give a new heart. Revelation 21, God will one day create a new heaven and a new earth where God will make all things new. The people of Israel serve Yahweh, serve God, who is doing something new on their behalf. And so we have to understand first what this old covenant was. 
Jeremiah helps us in verse 32. He says, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So obviously, he's referring to something in the past, so we have to go there, to the land of Egypt, right? The land of Egypt where the people of Israel were in bondage to Pharaoh. And God, through Moses, rescued the people out of Pharaoh's oppressive hand. And it was during this time that the people of Israel saw the Nile turned into blood, saw God pass over their family, yet kill the firstborn of every Egyptian, and then allow them to cross the Red Sea. And the people get out of Egypt, having been rescued by Yahweh, to the wilderness of Sinai. And God comes to the people. And he says in Exodus 19.4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, remember, command, promise, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Command, keep my covenant. Promise you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's quite an offer. Why wouldn't they take it? And, and that was the thinking of Israel as well. I mean, that this, this God Yahweh has rescued them out of bondage and has brought them to the wilderness of Sinai. And what is their response It says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Before even hearing the terms of the covenant, hearing the specific laws, the people of Israel are already jumping on board. They have seen the grandeur and the glory of God. They have seen his strength. They have seen his love. What would keep them from obeying this God who has done great things for them? And so the rest of Exodus is, this, is the terms of the covenant, the, the laws that God would give. Don't worry, we won't go over all those. That would take forever. But I, I want to emphasize this last question that I asked. What would keep them from obeying this God who had done great things for them? If after all they had seen actually happened, and it did... Why would they ever disobey? You hear a lot of people say similar things, right? If God would, if God would show me himself, if he would come physically here and, and appear right here, I would believe. If I could see a miracle right in front of my eyes, then I would believe the claims of Christ. The people of Israel had that exact same experience. God showed himself, performed miracle after miracle, And yet, in Jeremiah 31, what do we read? Verse 32, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Obviously, something is wrong here. They'd seen this great God and all that he had done, and yet they choose disobedience. They choose to break the covenant. And and this is where it gets really interesting. Put your finger in Jeremiah 31 and turn to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30. 
Deuteronomy was written just prior to the entrance of the promised land, right? So Exodus, they're in the wilderness of Sinai. The people of Israel disobey. And, and so God says, okay, you know what? All of you are going to die in the wilderness. It's going to be your children who are going to enter. And so Deuteronomy is written to their children. They've grown up. They're the next group. And so Moses has to teach them this covenant that their fathers accepted. And so that's the context of Deuteronomy 30. And this is such a profound scripture. Moses is getting to the heart of the issue for the people of Israel. Look at chapter 30, verse 15. This is Moses speaking. He says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. Right? It's going back to the covenant. Command and promise. You shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Verse 17. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. And so look at what's going on here. Moses appears to be giving a choice to Israel. It's a pretty simple choice. Choose obedience and you get life. Choose rebellion and you get death. But then Moses says something very interesting in chapter 31. Turn with me to chapter 31, verse 24. He, he seems to be giving a choice, and there truly is a choice. And yet, Moses says these things in chapter 31, verse 24. It says, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there a witness for a witness against you. Verse 27, for I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know... He knows that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. Okay. Chapter 30, Moses appears to be giving a choice. But in chapter 31, Moses is, is actually saying, this is what you actually will do. Listen, I know you. I've, I've seen you grow up. I know your actual heart. I know how fully set against God it is. I know that you don't want to be told what to do. I know that you think you know what's best for yourself. And that's your problem. You're married to God, yet you live the life of a harlot, seeking all the world has to offer. 
And that's the testimony of the whole Hebrew Bible. It doesn't stop in Deuteronomy. In Judges, right, right after they enter the promised land, the, the last verse in Judges says, In those days there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Then the people of Israel get a king, the people's king, Saul. He loses his kingdom because he decides not to do what God says when it comes to destroying the Amalekites. And then you have the man after God's own heart, David, who falls after lusting after Bathsheba and killing her husband. And then his son Solomon, the wisest man who has ever lived, fails as well, falling into the same sin that David did in lusting after the women of the world. And then you have the divided kingdom, right? Israel and Judah. Israel falls to Assyria and Judah will soon fall to Babylon. That is the whole history of the Hebrew Bible. And it all is a testimony to the inadequacy of our heart to obey. There was a problem with the old covenant. What was it? You see, the old covenant could inform But it could not change people. It could convict, but it could not cleanse. It could call for the circumcision of the body, but it could not circumcise the heart. And yet, Jeremiah prophesies of a new covenant. The God who makes all things new will overcome the inadequacy of the old covenant. A covenant that doesn't just inform, but changes people. That doesn't just convict, but cleanses the conscience white as snow. That doesn't just circumcise the skin, but circumcises the very heart of man. Jeremiah prophesies of this in verse 33. Turn back to Jeremiah 31 with me. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. What does it mean for the law to be within man, to be written on hearts? In order to understand what's going on here, we have to understand what the scriptures are talking about when it discusses the heart. You see, in the scriptures, the heart isn't pumping the blood throughout the bloodstream. But rather, the heart is seen as the seat of the emotions, the will, the affections, the thoughts, the intentions, the purpose, and the imagination of man. All of those things are grouped together in what the Hebrews call the heart. It's what Jesus meant when he said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, and slander. It's the heart that is the issue. And that is the issue that the new covenant is attempting to correct. If it really is from the heart that evil comes, then something must be changed in the heart. It's just like if you you go to your doctor, if you were to call up your doctor today and say, hey, I'm having some chest pains, they will not see you. They will send you to the ER. Why? Because your heart is so important. It is your heart that that controls everything else in your body. If your heart is not pumping, you are not living. Surgery must be performed to have your heart in working order again. And that is what the new covenant is doing. And see, the beauty of the new covenant is that the old covenant, the, the laws were written on stone tablets. 
And those tablets can be shoved in a corner, can be shoved in the Ark of the Covenant, right? Put in some dark corner, ignored. But the new covenant changes where that law is placed. In the new covenant, the law dwells within you, and it can't be disregarded that way. You will always have to come face to face with the law when you're in sin. You won't be able to get away with an angry heart, a lustful glance, a wicked tongue. Why? Because your conscience, having the law written on it, will prompt you to repentance. But how does this writing of the law manifest itself? If the Spirit is the one who changes the heart, who regenerates us, how does that manifest itself in our day-to-day life? If your heart is being written on, things are going to change. Your heart won't act the way it did. Your affections, your will, your desires, your thoughts, your purpose will change. Just take a look at, I believe, one of the most classic New Testament examples. Zacchaeus, right? The, the wee little man. Don't think of him as that, okay? He's a terrible guy. I know Stephen like, harps on that all the time, but he is a terrible guy. He, he, he was a traitor to, to Israel. He, he, he married himself to the Romans for a buck. This wicked man, however, encounters Jesus. And what happens? He's converted. And what does he say at his conversion? Luke 19, he says, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. This man who is completely comfortable stealing from his fellow countrymen just like that, is changed into giving it back fourfold. You can't explain that apart from Jesus. All of a sudden, his desires, his goals were changed. Why? Because his heart was changed. His affections were for Christ, and nothing would stop his obedience to him. He didn't care what anybody else thought. Imagine how embarrassing that would be. You, you defrauded someone and you say, you know what, I'm going I'm to give it back. You know what, I'm going to give it back fourfold. But he didn't care what people thought. Because his affections were completely set on Jesus. So I would like for you to consider now your own heart. Your own affections. Your own desires. What do you love the most? What is on your heart the most? Is it your job? Your children? your bank account, your sports team, your 401k, your education, your ease of life, what do you will to do the most? What are your greatest affections? The easiest way to know that, look at your checkbook and your calendar. What are your desperate yearnings? Are they for the things of God or for the things of man? Jonathan Edwards in his his piece on religious affections says this. Such is the nature of man that he is quite inactive any farther than he is influenced by some affection. You see, the affections are the springs which set us to work in the affairs of life and stimulate us in all our pursuits, especially in all affairs pursued with vigor. Take away all love and hatred, all hope and fear, all zeal and affection and desire, and the world would in a great measure be lifeless. There would be no such thing as activity amongst men, 
no earnest pursuit of any description. It is affection which engages the covetous, the ambitious, the voluptuous in their various pursuits. And it's your affection for God which engages the things that you do for God. You see, when the, when the law is written on your heart, it means the whole world that you're living in is turned upside down. The pursuits which you were so interested in prior to your conversion will seem like mere child's play compared to the grandeur of obeying the king of the new covenant. And see, this scripture, I love, I love the scripture because it can't be about behavior modification. That doesn't make any sense if you're reading this right. If, if the new covenant was about behavior modification, if, if being a Christian was really about changing your behavior, then there wouldn't be any mention of the heart. Behavior modification, which is taught in many, of the church, many churches today, address surface-level issues. Issues like how to be a better spouse, how to better deal with your finances, how to be a, a better parent. And I hope you want to be all those things. Christians are those things. But the way you become those things is not by working up the effort. Not even by coming to church. You're changed by the changing of your heart. And our propensity to to run to behavior modification as opposed to the transformation of the heart that Jeremiah 31 teaches is because it's just easier that way. If, if I can change without having to wrestle with the depravity of my heart, then, then I'll take that. Rather than, than tackling the issue that I am a sinner whose disposition is to fully subvert the authority of, and the glory of God, then I can sleep at night. Being in, in children's ministry and seeing children's ministers in life action ministries, I kind of saw firsthand uh, some of the propensity that we have for behavior modification. And it's, it's not unique to life action. It's very likely in this church as well, right? You, you have a child, like VBS is coming up here, right? And you have a child in your class, and, and he's just a terror, just a terror. And, and so you're, you get together as a, as a group of adults. You're praying for these kids. And, and you say, you know what? I want to pray for this, this kid, this little kid, Johnny, that he would obey that he would just obey me. Because that would make my life easier, right? And so could we pray that he would just become more obedient? Honestly, I wouldn't pray that prayer. Why? Because if that child simply learns to give surface-level obedience without coming face-to-face with the gospel, he'll be in a worse spot than he was when he was disobedient. He'll be taught that God is simply wanting lip service to his laws. And when that child gets older and he reads the Sermon on the Mount, how is he going to reconcile Matthew 5, 21 to, to, to 24? When Jesus says, you know, it's, it's, it's not about if you murder someone or angry with someone on the outside. It's about your heart. And it's, and it's not about not having sex before marriage. It's about keeping your heart pure even in the, in the recesses of, of your own soul. And so what I would rather see when, when approaching the, the teaching of children, and I know the father would rather see, is that, is that a child who struggles with disobedience, for him to come to Jesus in the midst of that. 
Perhaps, and I know you as parents don't want to hear this, perhaps his disobedience will need to get worse before he can see his depravity, his desperate need for heart change. Because he needs a heart that loves to obey. So maybe you as a parent need to change the way you're praying for your children. Rather than, please, Lord, let them obey. And I, and I know partly how, how much you want that. But rather, pray that God would change their heart. That he would regenerate them. Whatever it takes, it might take the pigsty. But if that's what it takes. And this doesn't just apply to children. It applies to our approach to, van- to the evangelism of, of all men. Lost people will love the world. That's to be expected. Lost people will subvert marriage. Lost people will lie. Lost people will steal. I'm surprised how many Christians are surprised by that. And your purpose in evangelism, yes, is to wake the lost up to the law, but, even, but it goes much further than that. Your responsibility is to wake themselves up to the Son of Man who has come to change hearts. Because true obedience to that law can only come about by the changing of the heart. It can't be forced and it can't be legislated. It can only be brought by the mercy and the grace of the new covenant. And so look at what is the result of this new covenant in verse 33. Jeremiah says, Yahweh says through Jeremiah, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the beautiful thing about this new covenant is that it will actually accomplish what was the entire plan of God of Israel in the first place. If you remember us reading Exodus 19.6, the Lord says, right, command, obey, promise, I will make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The, the people of Israel have failed here. They've failed to represent God well. And yet, in the new covenant, what Yahweh is saying is it's actually going to be accomplished. What I promised will come to pass. No longer will you, as the people of God, go after the gods of the world, but you will be fully devoted followers of Him. And why is this possible? It's because the heart has been changed in order to love to obey the Father. Before the new covenant, you would have to fight to obey. You could obey with all of your actions, all the while looking for an escape from such demands. And now you are still given the responsibility to obey, but your obedience is rooted in an utter devotion to God, whom whom loves you and you love. Because your heart has been changed to love him. And this not only affects us personally, this affects us as a whole body of believers. Look at what Jeremiah says in verse 34. He says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. You see, in the Old Covenant, you are a part of that covenant through physical birth through being a child of, a, of an Israelite. And with that came many who were ethnically a part of the covenant and yet had complete disregard for it. But now in the new covenant, entrance into the family of God has nothing to do with your physical birth, 
but all to do with the new birth, being born again into the family of God through faith in the Son of God. And 34 has a very, a very profound teaching for leaders here. I want, I want to talk to leaders, teachers in this church. He's saying that teaching will not be necessary in order to know God. Look at what he says. He says, for they shall all know me. Why? Because God himself becomes the teacher. He's, he's indwelling this new covenant follower, and so the law is already written on their heart. So, so maybe you're a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader or a one-on-one discipler, and it's very easy for us to uh, approach our teaching this way. If I'm not the one who is teaching this follower, if I'm not the one who's leading this group, then they will fall away. They're going to collapse. They're going to go up in flames. That goes completely contrary to this verse. For they shall all know me. All means all. That's all all means. You are not the master teacher here. The indwelling spirit using his sufficient word is the one who teaches and he can use anybody to teach. You are not that important. And so maybe you need to release your pride. Or maybe you need to release your fears of your followers, of the followers of Jesus that you're discipling falling away. Because this scripture is declaring that God is sufficient to sustain his followers. He is the one who guarantees their devotion. You aren't. From the smart to the dumb, from the rich to the poor, he's the one who sustains them. Then Jeremiah continues at the end of verse 34. This is my favorite part of the passage. It's quoted in Hebrews 10 as Dave read for us this morning. It says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What hope do these 14 words bring? I mean, just, just put yourself in the Israelite's shoes. All of the failure, all of the disobedience, all of the rebellion, forgiven. But what this passage doesn't do is establish how this sin will be forgiven. Right? Dave read for us this morning in, in Hebrews 10 that, that the sacrifice of animals cannot completely cleanse. And God, as a righteous judge, cannot leave sin undealt with. And so sinners who transgress this law must be brought to justice. And that is what is so beautiful about the scripture. The scripture is preparing Israel for the day that the picture developed in the Old Covenant, the sacrifices, become a New Covenant reality. The day where the Son of Man, fully God and fully man, born of a virgin, sinless in all thought, word, and deed, would be sacrificed on a cross and suffer and die for those who deserve justice. That you and I might be declared sinless children of God. That Son of Man is Jesus, the Christ. The new covenant is ushered by Jesus. And I say with John, behold, Jesus, the Christ, who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away your sin, who can cleanse your iniquity, who can cause your sin not to be remembered. 
It is through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, that he is now the mediator of this new covenant. If you would bow your knee to him, repent and believe, you will be given a new heart, a new will, a new desire that you might follow him with all your heart. And hear this, though this promise was made for the Jews, you too, a Gentile, can be grafted into the vine that is Jesus through repentance and belief. This isn't just for the Jew. This is for you and for me, for sinners. So perhaps this morning you find your conscience condemned. Your transgressions have gone too deep. Your sins are too heavy for you. You look at the law and you see what Jesus has taught on anger. God, I'm an angry man. I'm an angry woman. Or or you see his teaching on on lust and you say, say, God, I I struggle with that on a daily basis. Or, Or perhaps you see your own selfishness, your love of self over the God of this world. Or or you're you're covetous, or or in reality, you attempt to dethrone God. And yet, I tell you, if you are in Christ, All of those sins, and countless more, can be forgiven. If you are in Christ, your conscience can be cleared. Your sin can be remembered no more. Hebrews 9, For if the blood of goats and bulls, and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You can serve the living God today if you would bow your knee to Jesus. Your conscience can be completely cleared. Your burden can be ridded. That's the hope of the new covenant. In the words of John Bunyan, Thus far I did come laden with my sin, nor could on ease the grief that I was in, till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall off my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that was put to shame for me. Oh, what joy! To experience that cleansing, that lifting of that burden. To experience the person of Jesus. To experience the great blessings brought about by the new covenant. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Jesus, I know my heart and how wicked it is. And yet, how you have given me new desires, new longings for holiness. And I pray for Hamilton Baptist Church that those desires would be the characteristic of this church. That they would love to obey you. That that sin would be dealt with. Jesus, that consciences would be cleansed. By your power. 
Oh, how we love the words, I will remember their sin no more. What hope we have. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here, that that we would live in that reality. And for those here who have yet to experience the great cleansing that is founded in Jesus through the new covenant, that they would be brought to repentance and belief in you, Jesus. Jesus, do what only you can do. We give you this church. The elders here can't lead the way you can. And so I pray that you would sustain this church, not because of these elders and the leaders here, but because you alone are faithful. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.